Welcome to Sunday school. All right, join me in Haggai chapter 2. You should be there by now. Last week, we considered the prophecy of the Lord's temple found in verses 6 through 9 and how this goes beyond any earthly building made with hands, but rather it's a prophecy of the temple the Lord himself is building. Remember that we are called lively stones which are built up into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord. We are called God's building in the Bible. We are called God's house. And remember what Zechariah prophesied only about four months from this time in the exact same context as Haggai. They were both sent to Judah to encourage them in the building process. And Zechariah said to the high priest, This is in Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch, and he shall grow out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory. And he shall sit and rule upon the throne, and he shall be a priest upon his throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. So Christ is the builder of this temple. He's the glory of this temple. He's the high priest of this temple. And in Him alone do we have access into this temple where we can find real peace in this world. It's only in Christ. Well, we covered a lot of ground last week. We're not going to recap all that. So if you missed it, you can listen online. Now, for this morning, let's begin by reading verses 10 through 19 of Haggai chapter 2. In the fourth and twentieth day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts. Ask now the priest concerning the law, saying, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, No. Then said Haggai, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, It shall be unclean. Then answered Haggai and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, saith the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and that which they offer there is unclean. And now I pray you, consider from this day and upward, from before a stone was laid upon a stone in the temple of the Lord. Since those days were, when one came to an heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the press fat, for to draw out fifty vessels out of the press, there were but twenty. I smote you with blasting and with mildew and with hail and all the labors of your hands. Yet ye turn not to me, saith the Lord. Consider now from this day and upward, from the four and twentieth day of the ninth month, even from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it. Is the seed yet in the barn? Yea, is yet the vine and the fig tree and the pomegranate and the olive oil or olive tree hath not brought forth from this day? Will I bless you? Now, if we compare the verses where these dates are listed because we see in verse 10 that there's a time frame given. What you'll find is this portion that we're currently reading in Haggai is three months and 24 days from the opening of the prophecy, the opening of this book. So we're, we're almost four months into this process here in, in our text this morning. Uh, it's three months from when the work resumed And it's just over two months from the prophecy we covered last week. 
And uh, if we look at the message that is preached in each one of those time frames, in each one of those windows, there's, there's a lesson there for us. Um, and and I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is a dogmatic thing, but there's certainly a pattern that we find here. Um, we find first, God dealt with how they had gone astray by forsaking the temple. That's how the book opens out. Uh, opens up. And so um, they had gone astray. They weren't doing the work of God. And then we see how all the people in the next time frame, they were being stirred back to work. Because remember, that first message had to go throughout the camp. That took a lot of time back then. And so it had to go throughout the camp. And then once that was uh, stated, then they had to be stirred back to work. And then there was encouragement in the work. And now what we're going to see this morning is there's a need for holiness during the work. And I see a pattern here because God still operates this way. We first need our transgression addressed so that we can clearly understand where the problem is between us and God. Because God wants us to understand who we are before him. And and he was trying to tell them, and, and it touches on what I read this morning, look, the reason for your lack of harvest is because you've been forsaking me. And so he wants to address that. He wants to address what is separating us from him. What is causing a lack of blessing in our life from God. And so God first kind of does that in our life. And, and then we have to be shaken. We have to be stirred up to get back in a right relationship with God. So that we'll get about the Father's business. That we'll get back to work. So God says, uh, hey listen, I got a problem with you. And we're talking to believers right now. I got a problem with you. You're not doing what you ought to do. And here's the problem. And he lays it out. And then God says, all right, now that you know that, get that right, and let's get back to work. And then once you're back in the work, you're going to need encouragement along the way. Amen? Because it's hard sometimes. And so you've got to be encouraged in the work that he's given you to do. And then, uh, of course, God is going to help us in that process as he encourages us, encourages us in the work He's going to have to tweak us in, in some areas sometimes and say, all right, you got to tighten this up a little bit. You're not doing this in the right way. You're not doing this holy. And God's work has to be a holy work. Isn't that right? And so I just see that pattern there. That's not really the message today. We see in verse 11 that this message we are about to consider today is directed at the priest, but it's really for all the people. It's just going to be ushered through the priest from the Lord to Haggai, to the priest, and then to the people. So I don't want you to think at the outset today that this only applies to church leadership. It applies to all of us. Though there are the ones who teach, um, there are those who are responsible for teaching God's principles to the people. Some of you have been called to do that here. And so um, those who have that responsibility, those who practice that, those who are working in that area, listen, I want you to understand you've been appointed by God to do that. It's a heavy work. It's important. And so it's a responsibility that God has put upon you, that God has um, let me know that I feel that you need to teach in an area, and as you fulfill that, you are responsible for how you present the Word of God. And like I said, this is true for every believer because we're all supposed to be out there preaching. Amen. And so, um, anyway, 
there is though there are those who have to uh, be at the the, the podium that have to be at the classroom that have to do those things. But stay with me as I go. It's going to make more sense. So Haggai is about to ask the priest a question. And get this, the question centers around the law. When you, when you look at what is asked there in verse 11, ask now the priest concerning the law. Concerning the law. And so the question is revolving around God's word. God had designed it in Israel that the priest would be the dispensers of knowledge, that they would be the ones who would um, expound God's word. And as I said, if you're in a position where you teach, you have a responsibility to learn this book, to learn the word of God. Of course, every believer does, but in those days, they didn't have ways to mass produce the Word of God. In fact, you couldn't just walk in a house and say, can I see Isaiah's scroll, please? Uh, it was a very meticulous process. And so the scrolls were mainly kept at the synagogue and maybe those of some sort of stature, they could afford to have a scroll or something like that. But you didn't even have the Word of God where you could just turn to it. You had to take a scroll of the book. And I'm just simply trying to put you in, in what Haggai is saying here that um, it wasn't like you could just go to, to Brother Long and say, how come you're not reading your Bible? Um, but it was the priest who had the copy. They were the ones who were supposed to be reading this on the Sabbath day, and they were the ones who were supposed to be expounding this and everything else. And so there was that responsibility there. Now, this principle is, is still true today as far as the priest expounding the text. In many respects, it's still true. Um, now, thank God we live in America, and, and I mean that because last I checked, I, I haven't been in Walmart in 57 years, but the uh, last time I've been in there, they still sold the King James Bible. You can get a Word of God in this country really easy, isn't that right? Um, and now with electronics, you know, if you've got one of those smartphone thingies, you go to the Googles, and, and there it is, and you can uh, just pull up the Word of God. And so we're very blessed. We can easily acquire the entire Word of God. We can read from it every day, and we ought to be doing so. Amen. How sad that we have an abundance of Bibles, and yet it's so neglected. But the truth is, this is why God has designed it, so that ministers of the gospel, whenever possible, should be placed in a position where they can give themselves to prayer in the Word of God. That's the way God has orchestrated it. Uh, it's been designed this way because you should be living a life where you're laboring in the world. Isn't that right? You have a job. You have a secular job. And so you're devoting yourself to that. You're putting food on the table. You're doing all these things, taking care of your family. Um, and so while you're doing that, hopefully you can have a pastor who can study. Hopefully that can be the case. I i got to be careful how I, I say all this because I don't want you to get the impression that you have an excuse to be lazy in your own study of the Word of God. That's not what I'm trying to imply here. Um, now, I taught and I preached for 17 years of my 21-year military career, and I had to make time to do so. Isn't that right, Jed? You have to make time. You, you have to study as you have time. It takes work. It takes effort is what I'm saying. But I can tell you this, it would have been nearly impossible 
to pastor a church like this and be full-time employed. I did it for four months. And some of you were coming up to me saying, are you okay? And I was just like, what? And it's just very difficult is what I'm saying um, to hold down a full-time secular job and pastor a church. Um, and so anyway, it's just difficult is what I'm saying. Um, and, and honestly, it's still difficult. <laughs> um, now, I'm for bivocational pastors. Um, in some places, they're needed. They're necessary. My dad did it. Adrian's dad did so. And um, just small country churches in the backwoods of Georgia, and they're not going to be able to support a full-time minister. And so in those cases, I understand the requirement. But I believe that the desire should be to have somebody full-time who can give themselves wholly to the Word of God, wholly to the ministry. You're going to eat a lot more elaborately if you have a full-time chef. And I don't think any in here have the resources to have their own chef. This is why we buy pre-made foods. We use microwaves. We go through the drive throughs Because there isn't always time to prepare meals. But which would you prefer? Good home cooking with all the fixings? Or some rushed meal with little nutrition in mind, which you're just going to scarf down and not really enjoy? Well, what kind of meal do you want at church? You can have one uh, who uses pre-made sermons, right? Pre-cooked food, pre-made sermons, quick surface-based explanations and get in-and-out meals, micro, microwavable messages prepared in a hurry, which have little to it, or do you want to be fed a full-course meal? And that's why we have full-time ministers here. Um, but again, it's not a cop-out for you not to study. We're all commanded to study the Word of God. At least if you have a King James Bible, it still says study the Word of God, even though the new ones don't. And so we're, we're all to study the Word of God. We're to show ourselves approved unto God. And listen, you can't survive on someone else's manna. I mean, look, I know God's orchestrated it to where somebody gets up and preaches, and you're to get fed from that, but you're not going to live off that. You've got to gather in your own manna. You've got to have time with God yourself. And I'm simply highlighting that God wants at least one man who can give more attention than others for the sake of feeding the flock. And feeding the flock several times each week. And so that's the way God has designed it. Um, not to mention all the other responsibilities of a pastor during the week, which go into, um, which can take away from study and prayer. And if we're not careful, we can allow those things to trump what we ought to be doing. And so there's times where I have to not answer the phone. Amen. There's times where I've got to call a deacon and say, can you go make the hospital visit? Um, and so we've got to keep the main thing the main thing. So what about those who work full-time secularly and teach a class or preach somewhere routinely? We have a church full of them because um, it takes a lot of people to operate the church. Well, those are the ones who will count it important enough on their off time to study the Word of God. Instead of saying, well, I could be down at the driving range. I'm going to make sure I'm prepared for my Sunday school lesson or my sermon or whatever. And so there are going to be those who will walk with God close enough and say, I will take of my quote-unquote personal time and I will study the Word of God so that I can feed others. 
Amen. And so that's what we need in our churches. We need people that will take time to study the Word of God, that it's important enough to feed somebody else. And so I thank God for everyone here, but I especially am thankful for those who will take the effort, the amount of effort it takes to be prepared to teach a lesson. Now, here's the bottom line. If you preach or teach, you have been entrusted with a great responsibility. And some of this I say because I know our teachers are elsewhere. I'm hoping that they'll listen. Amen. And so you've been entrusted with a great responsibility before God. Now, here's, here's where I was building up to. Sorry, I went down the rabbit trails there. Verse 11, it tells us what our great responsibility is. It says there, ask now the priest concerning the law. Concerning the law. That's the emphasis here. And so that's what we study. We are to study God's word. Malachi 2.7 says, For the priest's lips should keep knowledge, and they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord's host. And so we aren't concerned, listen now, we aren't concerned with man's opinion. Amen. It doesn't say, uh, it doesn't say they're asked now concerning man's opinion. We aren't concerned with what man has to say on the matter. We're not concerned with the world's philosophy. We're not concerned with the government's position on morality. We aren't concerned with what some church organization says either. But what this verse is telling us is God wants us to know if we are taking the word of God seriously because that's what God cares about. Ask the priest concerning the law. But man, we get caught up in all kind of nonsense, don't we? You ever been in a church where the guy got up and he had a stack of books and hardly touched the Bible at all? I understand there may be a time and place to reference something and quote. I'm with that. But good night. If the, if the Bible isn't our foundation for when we get up and preach and teach, are we really concerned with God's law? Or are we concerned with what Pastor so-and-so from 50 years ago had to say? Amen. So we have a responsibility to read God's Word, memorize God's Word, meditate in God's Word, study God's Word so that we may learn as much as we possibly can. Because listen, as Christians, we're the dispensers of God's Word in this world. We're we're the ones that God has entrusted the Word of God to. He has put His treasure in earthen vessels so that you and I can dispense the Word of God out there to a world that needs to hear it. And so don't give them what Oprah thinks or Dr. Phil, or whatever his name is. Give them what the Word of God says. That's what we have to do. And we have to be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh us of the reason of the hope that's within us. Now, let's consider the two questions being asked in verses 12 and 13. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, and with his skirt do touch bread, or pottage, or wine, or oil, or any meat, shall it be holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then said Haggai, if one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, shall it be unclean? And the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. And so as I just mentioned from the previous verse, let's remember what God is asking them. He he is asking them concerning his law. He's not asking them, what's your opinion? Is your opinion that you can take holy flesh and let it touch something and, and that it remains clean? Is it your opinion that you can dabble with uncleanness and all the rest? And, and, and so he's not asking their opinion because man's going to have an opinion on holiness. 
Isn't that right? And they're going to say, well, I don't, I don't think it's that bad if I do this. I think it'd be okay if I play around with that. And so he, he's not asking them that. He's concerned with what, um, he, he's not concerned with what they feel is considered clean and what they feel is considered holy. He, but he is concerned that they understand what he commanded them from his law. So the questions are asked, can something still be considered holy if it touches something unholy? Can anyone who is clean still be clean once they touch something unclean? Now, you need to understand this morning that this is very serious with God. This is one of the overarching themes of the Bible. You've heard me mention this, I think, in our Sunday night series, but... We understand Christ is the theme, but why did Christ come to the earth? Because he wanted to bring a people unto himself. He wanted to take a people who were unholy, unclean, and through his blood, make them clean, make them holy, bring them unto himself, so that he could present to himself a bride without spot, without blemish. And so that's, that's what we're being taught here, this principle. Most who get into all this stuff, they'll, they'll talk about three divisions in the law. And, and I can see those things. I'm just not real big on, on, on some of that. But uh, the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. It's all one law. But there was that which spoke of the relationship between God and man. There was that which spoke of the relationship between man and man. And then there was the part of the law which um, was mankind worshiping God, if you will, uh, through what we call the ceremonial law. Um, This is the part of the law which pictured Christ through types, shadows, figures, uh, all those sacrifices we read in in Leviticus. And and so um, it, it was to be offered at the tabernacle. Those were all done away with in Christ. Amen, because he's the perfect sacrifice. And so they were just pictures. But also within the part of the law we commonly refer to as, as the ceremonial law were all those laws which were meant to show a difference between clean and unclean, holy and unholy. And, and it was, it's that part that some of the world will look at and they'll kind of make fun of. Um, it, it's, that, it's that part where some of it was done away in Christ, some of it wasn't. Let me explain there. Within, within what God said, you have to do this to, be, to show a difference between clean and unclean, there were some morality things in there that have not changed. But there were some things that were given that were done away with. For example, some of the dietary restrictions we learn over there in Acts um, that what God hath cleansed is cleansed. And so now we're allowed to eat catfish. Eat man. And so... We can compare Scripture with Scripture. We can look at the Old Covenant versus the New Covenant, and we can, we can see that some things were not done away with. Some were. A lot of those sexual laws were not done away with. Um, I shouldn't say a lot. But they were not done away with. Um, but remember the dietary restrictions um, that I would hate to have to keep today. I mean, I like crab. I already mentioned catfish. I can sit down at the catfish house and, or catfish den and Hiram George, and I can put the hurt on them. But here's the clincher. Bacon. Could you imagine, right? 
pig's feet, <laughs> pork rinds, pickled pig's feet. I mean, imagine not being able to eat that stuff. That's terrible. But God had a reason for it, didn't he? And so God also said, you're not to mix fabrics in your garments. We look at that now and go, what in the world? Those laws, which even some believers will scoff at and mock when they read that, but they had a purpose. They pictured the coming Messiah, but they also pictured His holiness. And this law was given by God to Israel so that when it was followed as prescribed by God, there would be a difference between Israel and the heathen nations around them. And the purpose, the hope was that as the heathen nations observed a righteous nation, it would cause them to want to seek after the one true God. And do you see the parallel? God says, I want a holy people. I want a clean people. Because the heathen world outside of here needs to see that there's a difference between clean and unclean. And it needs to make them scratch their head and say, maybe this is wrong. And so God wants this difference. He wants us to show what is holy and what isn't. <clears throat> In Deuteronomy 4.8, it says, In what nation is there so great that has statutes and judgments so righteous as all this law which I set before you this day? God said, look, I'm giving you this law not because I'm some mean father up in heaven, but because it is a righteous law. It is a good law. There is no other nation that can be as blessed as you can be if you'll keep this law. That's what God still wants. We are to live according to God's word, not man's opinion, not man's philosophy, not the government's definitions, but what God says. Live in a way that there's a difference between clean and unclean. And again, our clean living is, to, is meant to make them seek after God. And let me put it to you this way. They ought to look at our marriage and say, why are they happy all the time? I'm not saying we don't ever have problems. Amen. Y'all don't have to act like you, you and your spouse never, never have a disagreement. But the lost world is supposed to look at that and go, why have you still been with this woman for 23 years? The, the lost world is to look at our kids and say, well, how come, how come they can't do that? Isn't that right? Because God wants there to be a difference between clean and unclean. I was listening to a guy preach, and I really liked what he said. He said, um, you know, I was always told when you go into ministry, you're in a fishbowl. That's true. He said, but then it hit me, what a blessing. That people get to see a picture of Christ in the church. People get to see a picture of righteousness and cleanliness. In his case, his kids were raised, and he said, what a blessing for a church to see um, two daughters walk down the aisle and have their first kiss at the altar. He said, that's a good thing for people to see, right? So we shouldn't look at it so much as a curse, but as a blessing that we can influence people. God commanded the priesthood saying, and I'm just going to paraphrase this, but he, he said this, don't go to the tabernacle having consumed alcohol, lest ye die. Now, that's pretty motivating right there. But God followed that up with this in Leviticus 10.10, that ye may put difference between holy and unholy, between unclean and clean. 
we've had people drunk come in here. We don't snub them. Amen. We welcome them. We try to minister to them. But immediately you know there's a difference. There's a difference between clean and unclean. And so God gave the dietary laws. He stated after those in Leviticus 11, 43 through 47. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping thing. No problem there. Amen. Except Korea, man. They were, they were eating all kind of stuff. Neither shall you make yourselves unclean with them, that ye should be defiled thereby. For I am the Lord your God. Ye shall therefore sanctify yourselves. Ye shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall ye defile yourselves with any manner of creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. For I am the Lord that bringeth you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Ye shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law of the beast and of the fowl and of every living creature that moveth in the waters and of every creature that creepeth upon the earth to make a difference between the unclean and the clean and between the beast that may be eaten and the beast that may not be eaten. And then in chapter 20 of Leviticus, God addresses sexual immorality. In Leviticus 20, 23, he says, And ye shall not walk in the manners of the nation which I cast out before you, for they committed all these things, and therefore I abhorred them. Leviticus twenty twenty six, and those were those were all the homosexual acts and all those things listed there in Leviticus. And then verse twenty six of that chapter says, "And ye shall be holy unto me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have severed you from other people, that ye should be mine. I've separated you. That's why we're still here." We're not going to hold Hudson under this morning and send him on to glory. Because God has a purpose for his life. Isn't that right? Don't quote me on these numbers. I started losing track. <laughs> but in the book of Leviticus, the word unholy, well, this one was easy. It only occurs once. The word holy occurs 93 times. The word clean 45 times. And the word unclean 110 times. And I would suggest to you, no wonder people flame out in their Bible reading when they get to Leviticus. They try to blame it on reading all the sacrifices. But you know what? I think it gets convicting when we realize God wants there to be a difference between holy and unholy. Clean and unclean. And I don't want somebody telling me how I ought to live. I hope you're seeing God's principle on this matter. God is very serious about being clean, about being holy. And with this seriousness in mind, let's return to what Haggai uh, is, is speaking of here in verse 12. Look again. It speaks of holy flesh. If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment. According to Exodus twenty nine thirty seven, what made the flesh holy, listen, this is good, was that it had been upon the altar. Once, once it was offered, everything was administered properly, it would go upon the altar, it became holy. And then they would take the meat and they would carry it to the place where the priests were allowed to consume it. And they had to consume it in a certain way. And so every, the whole process had to maintain holiness. And, and so they had to eat it with unleavened bread in the court of the tabernacle, all these requirements. And once it became holy upon the altar, it was to remain consecrated until it was consumed. And it had to be consumed by those who were holy. It was a whole process that we're not getting into here. So the question is asked in verse 12, If one bear holy flesh in the skirt of his garment, 
and with his skirt do touch bread or pottage or wine or oil or any meat, shall it be holy? Can something which has become holy confer holiness to something which is not holy? Can something which is holy make something else holy? If I'm set apart and I touch this chair, does it become holy? And, and that's the, the question that's kind of being asked there. I'm probably dumbing this down a little bit too much. But the priests say no. Then in verse 13, it's asked, If one that is unclean by a dead body touch any of these, any of those things listed in verse 11, shall those things be unclean? In Numbers 19.11, it says, He that toucheth the dead body of any man shall be unclean seven days. And in Numbers 19.22, it says, And whosoever the unclean person toucheth shall be unclean. And the soul that toucheth it shall be unclean until even. So do you see the principle? I can be unclean and touch something, and I can make it unclean. Right? But I can't make it holy. The question is asking here, if one who's unclean touches any of those things that are listed there um, in verse 12, the bread, the pies, the wine, the oil, any of those things, does it remain unclean? Or, or is it unclean? And the priests say, yeah, it is. So the principle that something holy can't transfer holiness by touching something unholy, and something unclean will transfer uncleanness to whatever it touches. It makes me wonder if those wackos on TV have ever read Haggai. Well, you think your holy garment's going to make me holy? Not according to Haggai. I wouldn't mind to smack a few people. But Brother Jones told us about strength being restrained. Now, this is a very important lesson for all of God's children to understand and practice. How many of us in here wish we would have learned this principle much earlier in life? Unfortunately for many, it takes years. It takes years of heartache. It takes years of pain to learn this principle before it gets cemented in our hearts. How many do we know, or maybe even us at one point, have entered into a relationship with another thinking, I can make them holy. I can make them clean. Two young people have a physical attraction to each other. One's been saved. The other's lost. But the one who knows Christ will say, well, I think I can win them to Christ. But what happens in most cases, the relationship will eventually turn physical because that's where the only attraction was to begin with. And now this one who thought they could influence the other for Christ is committing fornication because you can't transfer holiness. But you sure enough can transfer uncleanness. Someone gets saved, but they still want to retain their ungodly friendships that they have in the world. And so they convince themselves that they can somehow influence them for Christ by still going to the same hangouts, by still partaking in the same activities, and that they're going to be this example that they're magically going to come running to Christ. But what ends up happening is they go into an establishment filled with temptations from their old nature. They end up partaking in something they have no right to be messing with. And they get right back into the mud that Christ had just pulled them out of. Because you cannot transfer the holiness. But you go in there where it's unclean, you're going to come out unclean. 
Can a man take fire in his bosom and not be burned and not smell like smoke? Here's the principle. It's far easier to pollute than it is to clean. How much mud does it take to corrupt a glass of pure water? Right? How many stains on a garment does it take until it's considered stained? How many viruses does it take in your body until you're infected? How many times does one have to murder before they're considered a murderer? How many times does one have to commit adultery to be an adulterer? How many times does one have to steal to be a thief? How many times does one have to lie to be called a liar? How many times does one have to covet to be a coveter? It takes only once. Isn't that right? It's only once. Somebody kills your kid, you're not going to say, well, they're not a murderer yet. Now, it's interesting people can recognize that fact. But listen now, when you ask them how much sin it takes for you to be considered a sinner... Well, now it's a whole different qualification standard. How much leaven does it take to leaven the whole lump? The Bible answer is just a little. Now, I, I tried to talk to my wife about this, and here's what I came up with. How do you get leaven out of the dough? You can't. You can't. You have to start with a whole new lump. Isn't that right? You cannot cleanse yourself spiritually. You can't remove your sinfulness. Old things have to pass away and all things have to become new. It takes the blood of Christ for us to be cleansed. And that's only going to be applied to the sinner who will cry out to God for salvation. That application I just gave is to the lost, but let's uh, meddle with you believers in here. Now, remember the principle here. The flesh in verse 12 was made holy by being upon the altar. And you can come in here on Sundays and you can come to the altar and you can bow yourself before God and you can cry out to Him and you can ask for forgiveness. You can get your heart right. You can get clean once again, confessing your sins. You can walk away holy. And I thank God for all that. But it's how we live after we leave the altar which will determine our continued holiness and cleanliness. Are you defiling yourself by touching uncleanness? 2 Corinthians 6, verses 14 through 18 say, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? And what concord hath Christ with Belial? Or what part hath he that believeth with an infidel? And what agreement hath the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God, as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Listen now. Wherefore, come out from among them, and be ye separate. Then what does he say? Touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. I will be a father unto you. Ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. And what's great in that is chapter 7, verse 1. That, that ends chapter 6 there of 2 Corinthians. But the first verse of chapter 7 continues the end of chapter 6. It says this, Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved... Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. We know before we come to Christ, we have no way to cleanse ourselves. 
But after we're saved, the Bible talks a lot about being clean and staying clean and working at those things. And that's not telling us that we can forgive ourselves of our sins. We are not our own high priest. Um, If we could do so, um, that would be one thing, but we can't. We have to go to God. We have to go to Christ. We have to ask for forgiveness. But listen, it's an abomination to live holy lives by abstaining from external filthiness, external uncleanness, and yet our minds and our heart are still just as wicked as they were. You see, what I'm trying to say there is you can come and you can get cleansed and and you can come in here this morning and you can look the part. You can look clean. You can look like you're holy. You can do all those things. But are you clean inwardly? It's kind of like James 4.8, Cleanse your hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Now, the end of chapter 7 there, verse 1 says, Perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Psalm 19.9 says, The fear of the Lord is what? Clean. And I would like to suggest that if you're not maintaining holiness and cleanliness before God, then you're not fearing Him properly. I don't know how you were raised, but there were certain things that was understood in our home, I should say my dad's home, that you didn't come home and do. And you didn't go out and do and let him find out because if he did, there was going to be some wrath involved. There was going to be some judgment, I should put it that way. And the reason why is because I feared my dad. He put the fear in me is what I'm saying. Are Are you with me? The fear of the Lord is clean. If we'll fear our heavenly Father properly, if we'll fear His judgments with a holy fear, it's going to help us to live clean lives. It'll help. Now, we're not going to go further today, so we won't see the application to Israel here, but don't expect to remain in a right relationship with God if all you do is leave the altar and go right back to the pig pen. If you go right back to your sinfulness, you just went from clean to unclean, from holy to unholy. Uh, Conversely, let me close with this. You can make the outside look as clean and holy as you want, but it doesn't make the inside clean. Jesus said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, clean thou first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye are likened to whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Is your inside clean? Is your inside holy? We've got to live holy and clean lives. There's only one way to be cleansed, and that's through Christ. We need His righteousness imputed to us. Don't try to fool yourself into thinking you're clean when you're not. You can come in here and look good. Don't fool yourself. Don't try to convince yourself that you're clean when you, when you really aren't. We just need to be real with God. Amen? Let's pray. We'll pick this up next time if the Lord wills. Our Heavenly Father, we love you. Thank you for the Word of God. Thank you for this principle that teaches us that we need to live clean. We need to live holy. We need the world to see a difference and that they will understand that there's a God in heaven that we fear, that we love, and that we obey. 
Lord, I pray you'd help every one of us to search our hearts this morning, especially as we go into the Lord's Supper. Examine ourselves because Christ is worthy. We pray in the power and the authority of his name. Amen.